Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. And then there's one random one that I assume the late one is on Amazon. Or am I wrong on that? No, it's ours, buddy. That's NBC. A- NBC. That's NBC. This is a big, big money. Okay. This is the most profitable, I believe, of the NFL games because of all the Black Friday stuff. Well, everybody, let's be fair. Why are we doing a podcast today? Um, because nobody wants to be with their family for any great length of time. It's a good idea till it happens. And then yes. you go, what am I doing? The Tony Kornheiser Show is on now. And to that point, as we were sitting here before we went on the show, Nigel told about a family Thanksgiving that you all need to hear about. Why don't you tell that story? Yeah, so this is years ago. Um, I actually was not at this particular Thanksgiving, but all the big family was. And one well, of why were you not there? Probably, you know, on probation or incarcerated or something okay, like that. Okay. Detained by authorities. Right. Yes. Um, and so free the detainees. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So um, one of our cousins, his wife, I guess she'd had a little bit too much to drink and a little bit too much on her mind with everybody there, and started laying into. Her husband, our cousin. Like yelling. Yes, screaming, actually, is screaming. what I was told. And then that sort How of, late in the dinner was this? Did it ruin the dinner? It was before dinner. And how late in the day was the event? Was this like yeah. a midday I, I think it was. I think it was midday, early afternoon. Mimosas, you know, probably. Yeah, a lot, you know, lot of cocktails, I would imagine. Lots of hors d'oeuvres. You know, just sort of the gathering phase before you did the final touches on the meal. And So was there no meal? Or did she leave? Well, was she was, asked to leave? Did you call the police? It was at their house. So, <laughs> oh, so she was in charge of the meal. Well, at, at least, yeah, nominally, wow. yes. Uh, That's a movie, and so it's, it's not a Hallmark movie, I don't think. No, it's a movie though. <laughs> so then, uh, I think she eventually turned on the guests, you know, all the relatives, and and people just. What started was to, the resolution? I mean, did did everybody just leave? Yes, everyone left. And what and, happened to her with the family after that? Well, they, that that marriage did not last much longer after that. I think. Okay. Yes, yeah, so she's no longer. Was no, your cousin welcomed back into the family after he ditched her? <laughs> yes. He people was. clapped and said, "Good yes. move." She yes. was crazy. Big slow clap for that. Yes, but no, they they all fled to another cousin's house who lived in that town because a lot of people came in from out of town. They sort of just on the fly. You know, put together some kind of a meal. Just and, had a turkey in the oven. I, they, well, they I didn't. So they didn't take the woman's turkey, the screamer. <laughs> didn't take no. her turkey. I just, no. I, I envision her sitting on the floor crying into a turkey leg. <laughs> oh. Wow. Yes. So I hope never, everyone's was nice. Than I that. lived. I've lived a long time. I never had anything like that. When I was young, we all gathered on Thanksgiving. Everybody gathered at my uh, aunt Shirley and Uncle Arnie's house which was in Atlantic Beach, which is literally on 10 Albany Boulevard, Atlantic Beach, New York, literally across the street from the Atlantic Ocean. There was, there was the last house that you could live in. There, was a, you know, there were 50 houses on the street, but they all faced the Atlantic Ocean and beach clubs and things like that, which leads to an, an entirely other event, which is do you have the right to privatize something like the ocean. And I don't even want to get into that because I haven't thought about it in a long time. We would go to my Aunt Shirley and Uncle Arnie's house and there would be my mother and father, Shirley and Arnie as adults. My grandmother, Pauline, would be there. There would be my Uncle Gene would be there, the brother of my mother and her sister, Shirley. 
and you know a guest or two somebody else from the family but this was when what i remember was being at the proverbial kids table we were in a different room sure we were exiled and banished and as my cousin marilyn and my cousin shelly and me and probably some other cousins as well whose names and faces don't spring to mind but it wasn't just three of us you know that there were probably 20 people in the house maybe a little bit more than that. And there was an adult's table. I never did this with you and your sister. You were always welcome. And always had full access. Yeah. And, and so we were at another place, and every once in a while, someone would come by and drop off some food and leave us alone. And I don't ever recall a fight. I don't ever recall screaming. I have wonderfully warm memories of those uh, Thanksgivings that were in my childhood. Um, very, very nice. I could never recreate that. I didn't have an extended family that allowed me, wherever I lived, to recreate that. I've always, I've always thought that Thanksgiving was the, I said this the other day, the American holiday and the American family holiday. And in the past in my life, I have reached out to people who I knew were alone. And I said, do you want to come over for Thanksgiving? And invariably, they say, we don't like you that much. We don't want to be with you at all. And so I'd cross them off the list <laughs> and make an attempt. I'd make an attempt <laughs> the next year for someone else. Right. What you, you, you must recall. So I was thinking I about mean, Thanksgiving this. was a day. I often worked, though. Right. You, you I worked. I worked. And yeah. we, you know, I, I, I have a sister. We're still a small family. And we yeah. never traveled because you were working. Yeah. So I viewed Thanksgiving in, in phases. I think the Flutie game was a Thanksgiving game. Uh, I think so. So when I was a kid, I, I remember the parade, and I was thinking about that because the boys finally are old enough where they were to just watch the parade. a captive audience because they recognize the characters, and it's through their eyes. They're seeing these larger-than-life creatures come out of their storybooks and from TV walking down. Well, they are larger-than-life. They're in gigantic La- costumes. That's, yeah, okay, you're going into a Backstreet Boys song right there. Oh. Uh, no, so I remember, I remember the parade. I remember just a small gathering for our family, and I, I more remember the process of mom cooking. Yeah. Uh, and, and I was thinking about that when I was making the stuffing yesterday. And then when I got older, it meant golf. Dad and, you know, I would go out and play golf. And that was... Which I'd love uh, to we, do we, today, except that I have no sciatica. We'd bundle up. And then, you know, you get to the college years and we'd, we'd do these Thanksgivings out at uh, Rehoboth. And then uh, when, when I started dating Liz and we joined her family for Thanksgiving, it was, it was golf. It was a little bit bigger, but it was not this sort of multi-family yeah. uh, gathering. And then with the kids, it's it's definitely shrunk down. But uh, I think a lot of it for us depends on if you're celebrating, say, Christmas as well, if you have both sides of family in the same region and you're trying to say, is this the year we're seeing the in-laws or are my parents coming over to our house? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always have nice memories. Michael was kind enough. I think it came down to a coin flip between you and me as to who he would invite yesterday, and he invited me. Um, and he well, I, invited, it, I invited Nigel as well, but that was uh, mostly to just work the event. Right, you know? valet service. Yes, I, yeah. park some and cars. So, it's it's better valet than service. Park. Michael's upset at where we parked. Where Michael's you, upset at where we parked. Where we parked you, in, a big, in a big thing of leaves. You parked in a leaf pile that a my kids pile. play in. Yeah, we, yeah. There's we, a remainder space between <laughs> two driveways. It's not big enough to be a legal street parking spot, yet you decide to park there every so I'm time not you visit a ticket. our house. It's Thanksgiving. I'm not getting a ticket. <laughs> so Michael made, let me say what Michael made. Michael made turkey breast. He made stuffing. He made green beans with crispy onions. A, a garlicky green bean with Really, really onions. good. That sounds fantastic. Um, and then for dessert, just to show me 
you know, what I really mean to him. He made a pumpkin cake, knowing I would never eat it. <laughs> I heard you like pumpkin. <laughs> a pumpkin cake. So Carol had four or five pieces of pumpkin cake. So Liz, made, Liz made the pumpkin cake okay. with our children, and she did not want to try great. and get into the rat race of making a pie with the other Liz because she's a professional cook. And she made, she sent us a picture, she made duck. A beautiful oh. She made the traditional Thanksgiving duck. And everybody says, well, it's, it's got to be turkey. Um, well, you know, that means at Christmas it has to be goose, and nobody's going to... What are you going to do? You're going to go to a, a pond at a golf course and strangle a goose and cook it because that's where they're available. Um, I don't know. I, the duck looked great. She Elizabeth looked like it was great, but Michael's dinner was tremendous. I ate, I just kept grabbing little pieces of turkey all the it time. It was like Manfred's new rules for Major League Baseball because Dad was in and out in under two hours and forty minutes. Yeah. I would have been out in under 210. <laughs> he pulled mom out of, away from the table. She was still mid, eating. Mid-meal. Well, she's still eating. You know, enough She's enough. running into the car. He's forcing her to drive off. She doesn't even turn on the lights to the car. No, <laughs> they come on automatically. No, no, no. They they was, were, they, the auto was turned off. It was lovely. Well, she knocked into it on the way. She, you know. Probably because she had to climb through the leaves. Yeah. It seemed like a good parking spot. It was available, and it was in front of the house. And the kids played, and everything was... Everything was really nice, I, but I don't, I'm sure that more families, I'm sort of amazed when I think about it, that that didn't happen in my family because we had a lot of contentious people in my family. I do remember this. I remember my Aunt Bernice, and this was the last time that we did this. We had some sort of family function. I don't know what holiday it was. My Aunt Bernice was married to my Uncle Stanley. My Uncle Stanley, my father was one of three boys. My father was the oldest, then Uncle Boots, and then Stanley was the baby. And Stanley and his family, he had Alan and Nancy, his children, and they lived, you know, half hour from us. They lived in Baldwin when we lived in Lindbrook. And one time I went over there, and my Aunt Bernice put me in a corner with a dunce hat. Actually made me put on a dunce hat in the corner. And I did it because... She was an adult. I was five years old, six years old, whatever it was. I did it because she was an adult and she told me to do it. And it really frosted my parents. I'm sure it did. It really frosted my parents. Um, I was always reticent to have anything to do with her after the story, the full story was told. You know, I, I only knew it in bits and pieces. I don't remember what I did to force me to wear the dunce hat. At least it wasn't a scarlet a day for adulteress, <laughs> you know, something like that, a Hawthorne book. But or a I Cuffin. was reluctant to have anything to do with her again. And I was always had my guard up with her. And I have to say that as I got older, um, she was always very nice to me. Uh, you know, I, I, this incident was never brought up. Never. This is the first time I'm remembering it. I mean, I knew about it. It was never brought up. But she was always nice to me. And always seemed to be particularly enthralled by my success. Because I think, as with everybody in my family, on both sides of the family, they had written me off to going to jail when I was young. <laughs> oh, there was the dunce hat. Yeah, and the dunce hat. And so I guess everyone, Carol's family as well, just thought I was very weird and headed for no good. But who's laughing now? <laughs> you know, I'm laughing now. I yeah. mean, I did all right. Yeah, did. I okay. did all right. But, you know, the dunce hat, I have to say that Alan and Nancy were very, very smart. I mean, Alan, extraordinarily smart. Um, 
extraordinarily smart. And so I probably was the dumbest of the three. You know, I was the dumbest. Of so the it three. seems a bit extreme measure. Here, put this on. Let me label you. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, and sit in the corner. <laughs> sit in the corner with a dunce hat on. Yeah, it's as a result of that. It's a bit much. I never did that. I never targeted my children in that way, except with a certain amount of laughter. You know, I right. And it's terrible, isn't it? Sure, I'm going to wait another 50 years before I start uh, exploring those memories. Yeah. So let me read a couple of things. From C.D. Bradley in Marietta, Georgia. I just saw the Missouri Marching Band on the Macy's Day Parade. I'm just going to assume they played the mailbag song when they were not on camera. You saw them too. I saw it. I texted you immediately. They had a prime spot. Yeah. That's fantastic. Isn't that good? Isn't that good? From Jeff Barger in Hillsborough, North Carolina, watching the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade gave me an idea. I think there should be a Mr. Tony balloon in the parade. What kid wouldn't love the sight of a larger-than-life bald orange man? Dan Bird could be on the float singing Victor Wembanyama. Can't wait until next year's parade. And from Kaylee, um, I can't be the only one who was incorrectly hearing Victor Wembanyama by the backup singers during the performance of The Circle of Life by the cast of The Lion King during the parade, right? The Mizzou marching band sounded good, but I was hoping they'd play the hits like the mailbag song. Happy holiday from Phoenix. So... I mean, everybody all over the country watches that. It's not, it was never appointment viewing. It was like you looked at the clock, you went, oh, well, the, the, right. the Macy's Day Parade is great, on. Let's just watch. Great to be in the background. Yeah, let's yeah. just watch. And then, uh, you know, they ended it with uh, Long Island's own Mariah Carey. All oh. I want from Christmas is you. Uh-huh. And she, she is, she stands on the float, honestly, and she's on the ground floor. She's not on the top. She stands on the float like she's tethered. She doesn't move any part of her body except her arms. Like she's actually stuck in it or nailed to it. And it's lip syncing. Nobody's singing these songs live. They come in a little late. They leave a little early. And then they say, thank you is the only words that are real. But everybody sort of knows that, right? Nobody. Yeah. Nobody's upset. We by got a that. plan for the cold and wind. It was, and it was a beautiful day yesterday, but sometimes it's terrible. Yeah, it was very nice. Very nice. I, I did see on, on social media that people were a little outraged that she had lip syncing. But you're right. It's What's, like the expected. <laughs> you can't do it any other way but lip syncing. I don't think. <laughs> right. Can I um, get. Oh, by the way, I, you were correct. Uh, it wasn't the game was not on Thanksgiving. It was the day after Thanksgiving. Okay, but the that's why game. I was down there yeah. for that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you got to understand as a sports writer, the children of sports writers, I think are extraordinarily privileged. I do. Because they come to understand that the world works differently for people. Not everyone has the same stuff. If you can get a Monday and a Tuesday off, it's so much better than a Saturday or Sunday. And sports writers work on weekends. I mean, they give you the sports news that you're watching on TV. Exactly. You don't ever... Like, if you cover the NFL, you can forget the idea of a Thanksgiving off. You're never getting Thanksgiving off. Right. You're never getting the weekend off. But maybe next week you get Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, which is pretty good. You, had, you and your sister had to grow up with yeah. that. Not terrible. Not at all. Enjoyed those moments. <laughs> from Joe Ippolito. A few things that need addressing. Oh, by the way, I also got a note from Bonnie yesterday that it was Kirsten Onstad's birthday yesterday or the day before. Oh. And she said, you didn't wish her a happy birthday. Would you please do that on the podcast? And I would say, I didn't because we, I didn't know. Yeah, we didn't know, but yeah. We don't keep track of birthdays. <laughs> Not as much as so people So happy birthday to Kirsten. Yes, happy love. birthday. A few things that need addressing, writes Joe Ippolito. While Jason Singer's performance as Lance Ebbett on Chicago Fire is unimpeachable, he is on this point mistaken. 
Any passing resemblance between my holiday movie pitch and The Christmas Thief is entirely coincidental. Truth be told, until this morning, I was unfamiliar with the work of the Ion Network, having never resided in an assisted living facility. <laughs> That's a funny line. That's a funny line. Right? That being dispensed with during Friday's discussion of my forthcoming collaboration with Greg Garcia, Tony posited that I may, in fact, write for a living. It was an innocent remark and a hugely complimentary one given the source. But what Tony had no way of knowing was that he had inadvertently uncovered a decades-old story of regret and betrayal, a tale for Greg to enjoy whilst cozying up with a beverage beside the warm embrace of his royalty check-fueled limited edition platinum solo stall. I know he's going over the show word by word. So great. Now, I'm a man. I'm 40, Joe Ippolito writes, but what you're about to hear is something I've never discussed, not with my wife and child, not with my rabbi, but at this point, I feel I owe my fellow Littles and my future creative partner, Greg, the full truth. You see, I come from a long line of writers. My parents both were people of the pen, as were their parents before them. Great-grandpappy Ippolito was the town's elder wordsmith. He'd come to the area years earlier with designs on opening the region's first writing mill during the early prose prospecting days that gripped the American West and have been all but lost to history. We are going down a (laughs) rabbit hole here. This is so interesting. Uh, The mill started small, supplying the scant bits of text needed for the area's few literate folk, but it quickly grew to become an empire with new divisions springing up constantly, feature writing, literature, and its related criticism, even a small lightless room in the basement, which provided the perfect environment for the spawning poetry in the oeuvre of Louise Gluck. Okay. And while I never got to know my great-grandfather well, I remember his parting advice to me before he succumbed to a terminal case of carpal tunnel syndrome. Kid, you'll never go anywhere in this business if you don't use a bic. With wisdom like that in my DNA, I was groomed to lead our burgeoning kingdom of words. I relished every moment, stacking sentence upon sentence, some blend of hard work and genetics shaping clauses and structure and rhythm and lilt. The future was illuminated, but as my father's capacity diminished due to his diagnosis of advanced writer's block, the mill fell on hard times. Did I step up to meet the moment and fulfill my destiny? I wish I could tell you I did, but I was a wayward youth, drunk on naivete and boundless possibility. I wasn't ready to resign myself to a predetermined path churning away at the family trade. I wanted to chart my own course, to do something truly artistic. I wanted to go to business school. (laughs) I didn't see that coming. I wanted to go to business school. They could keep their florid paragraphs and their so-called creative freedom. I was a rebel. I yearned for the adventure that only a soulless corporation monolith could provide. <laughs> Michael, he's a writer, right? I mean, it's, it's, come on. Come on. He's, Greg's listening to this now saying, you know, I think I could do this. Right. I think we could get together and actually do this. The exactly. rift in the family was deep. They implored me to see the error of my ways, but their beautifully crafted letters went unanswered. By the time I realized what a fool I'd been, it was too late. The mill had been sold off participle by participle. No one said anything about the depths of my failure. Of course, they no longer had the words. But one got the sense that the town never fully recovered from the loss, and I myself have never recovered from the shame. And so you can see, my near certain partnership with Mr. Garcia is so much more than a can't-miss creative success for us both. It represents not only a return to the only true passion I've ever known, but a chance to restore my family's rightful honor. Our collaboration, the details of which Greg is surely finalizing, may be my one opportunity to undo a mistake leaden with the weight of generations. We all have much to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. I am particularly grateful for our impending meeting in Los Angeles. They say you can never go home again, but you can go to the Beverly Wilshire. Oh, and please tell Alex Lau that I used to work on 8th just off Broadway, and that scaffolding is never, 
ever coming down. Joe Ippolito, Brooklyn, New York. Huh? Right? <laughs> Thanks, Joe. I mean, right? What yeah. do you, I mean, Greg's got to think. Hmm, there's <laughs> some talent here. Yeah. You know, because if it because what what was the email the other day that was so great that it's it's structure. Like there is, it's formulaic. Oh, yeah, sure. The Hallmark movies, yeah, uh, all of which, they're all formulaic. Yeah, the three stock characters, the yeah. one, hour 40, the crisis. Yeah, now yeah. Greg can do that on his own. He probably doesn't need Joe Ippolito, but he's probably intrigued a little bit by Joe Ippolito at yeah. this point. Who is so. now writing, I feel like a medium, <laughs> right? I am, I am channeling people to, you know, the far corners of the of the earth. Yes. Los, Los Angeles and Brooklyn. Yes. And I'm just speaking their words bringing, as a medium. Bringing people together. That's, that's what we long to do. <laughs> Ann Hornaday will join us when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Young boy, what does it mean? These are the Reed Brothers. They're really Reed Umstead. And probably doing echo work or something like that. But he goes as the Reed Brothers. We have done his music before. It's lovely. It is. It's really lovely. This is, which songs, let me get the song, because I got on the back page. This is called All of Your Dreams Are Coming True. And he sounds really good. He is. <laughs> He's really good. Michael, if people like the Reed Brothers want to send music or when their friends as happened today send in their music how do they do it send us your music by emailing it to jingles at tonycornizershow.com recornizers first thanksgiving yesterday oh yeah how did he do i mean he's a five and a half month old baby no but he, he was sat he, there. he smiles at me he did smile at you yeah a couple of times yeah. anybody try and put a hat on him in the corner yeah no <laughs> that's for next holiday i hope i have that right i've lived with it all my life <laughs> i hope i have it right okay there's no one around who can confirm it uh, we have Ann Hornaday, and, and we're going to talk about a bunch of movies, and we're going to talk about Paul Newman's autobiography posthumously released and, and I guess put together. Maybe it wasn't an autobiography as much as a biography. Well, Ann will know that story. We'll get to that. But I wanted to talk. You really did like a movie called She Said. Yeah. And if I understand this correctly, this is about two reporters at the New York Times who uncovered all of the bad stuff with Harvey Weinstein, right? Is it tell tell us about the movie? Yeah, I mean this is the story of of um these two Joey Cantor and Megan Tui played by um Carrie Mulligan and Oh, she's good. Oh, she's very good. Carrie Mulligan's good. And yeah. Zoe Kazan who's also very good. Don't know her. And I think I just reversed the role, so okay. anyway, do the math. So Zoe plays anyway, you'll figure it out when you see the movie. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's a procedural, much in the tradition of all the President's Men and Spotlight. Um, and it just shows them tracking down. You know, it, it starts in 2016, actually, uh, with Trump, you know, the Trump campaign and the, and the Access Hollywood tape and the fact that that didn't really move the electoral needle. Um, but it really, it was sort of the beginning 
of a plan to do more reporting about sexual harassment. Um, and so kind of as part of that larger, um, under that larger umbrella, they they followed up on stories that had been kind of circulating about Harvey Weinstein, but nobody, for years, nobody would go on the record. And so it's really their attempts to follow up on these, what were rumors, and then finally trying to get somebody to go on the record. I mean, that's the hardest part. Um, and, you know, I, I was... I've been talking to other journalists about this movie, and it's like the um, the, the chase isn't really the thing. I mean, you, you know, it's 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 a very dutiful journalistic procedural in terms of just how reporters go about doing their jobs. But what what really got me about this film is just the emotion of it. You know, when they do find these women who had had experiences with Weinstein, their personal testimony and the scenes with them just telling their stories are just they're just devastating and they're breathtaking and they're beautifully acted. Um, Samantha Morton to me has like the, the, the anchor scene of the entire film. She is just, she is so good in her one very important part. Um, the actress Jennifer Ellie, very similarly just, so yeah, it's like, I think the value of these stories, these movies, even though we know how it ends and we sort of feel like we know the arc of it and all that, but it really just puts it into an emotional language that I think kind of changes it. You know, once you once you sort of understand the story in these terms, it makes it palpable and real, and this it just changes it uh, in a way that I think is really important and really valuable. So um, I worked at a newspaper, and I feel these things differently than other people. Right. I I look at all the president's men and I look at Spotlight and I just go, wow, these guys are great, you know, and this is how it works. Mm -hmm. And there are days and weeks and months and even years where you don't get anything. Mm -hmm. And getting somebody to go on the record is really the hardest part because mm -hmm. that that unlocks the door and then other people will join it. But it's very, very hard to do. I mean, yeah. Uh, and sometimes when people do it, and I will refer to the Bill Cosby situation, they are immediately doubted. They are publicly criticized. Oh, yeah. They are just des destroyed. So there's, yeah. there are good reasons not to go on the record. But right. I look at all the president's men in Spotlight and to a lesser degree movies like Without Malice and The Paper and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I love them all mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. that was my life. Mm -hmm. What is your sense? You, it's your life. What is your sense of the average person when they see something like this? Do they get bored because it's just not, it doesn't explode. Right. You know what I mean? It doesn't I explode. I know. And it's like that, you, you put your finger on it, Tony, because waiting for someone to go on the record isn't exciting. You know, it's, no. it's, you're waiting. You still can and, go to the laundry. You exactly. still can do your hoping. regular life. Yeah, yeah, you're hatching the phone. You're answering the yeah. phone. I mean, that's what made All the President's Men still oh. and always the masterpiece that it is. Oh, because so it makes people on the phone absolutely nail-bitingly exciting and it's like what and then um, you get a scene like with jane alexander well that's the and thing and then you get and you get to say and that's you just right. but it's, i'm blown away because i lived this i know i don't know, I know. if regular people are i, I know. don't know no i mean that's the question i and i mean um i will say another really powerful element in this movie is that ashley judd who was the person who went on the record you know she's yeah, the one the who real decided person. to go on the record she plays herself, you know, and she plays herself making that decision. And it's just, it's really powerful, you know, it's very powerful. Also, just in terms of the, 
newspaper nerd part, like there are some wonderful scenes with um, the editors, Rebecca Corbett and the editor of the Times, Dean Baquet, who are going to, you know, when you mentioned the pushback that these people get, these sources get, uh, when Harvey pushes back um, and they stand up to him, I mean, that is actually kind of exciting. You know, it's, it's, it's great. It's like, it's, it just makes you so very proud, you know, of the profession and of people who pursue it with integrity and guts. Um, but, yeah, that your question about average people, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, we're kind of, I think the jury is kind of out, and we're, we're waiting to see if people are actually going to go see this movie. Okay. All right. Um, Ray Fiennes is in a movie. He plays a chef who I think tries to kill everybody he cooks dinner for. Is, it, is Do I have the essence of it? I, spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, I just see Gordon Ramsay. Every time I see the ad for the movie in my head, it's Gordon Ramsay, and he wants to kill everybody. You know, I don't know. But it, it's it's okay, but not great, right? Well, I mean, it, I, first of all, Ray Fiennes, you, you got me at Ray Fiennes. He's just yeah. he's so delightful and wonderful to watch do anything at this point, you know. And he is really good at it being a baddie. I mean, it's just delish. It's a very stylish movie. It looks fantastic. It, you know, he's this chef at a very um, exclusive artisanal restaurant that occupies a, a very, you know, a remote, attractive island. And so they, they really play up the production design in a beautiful way. Um, and great cast, Nicholas Holt, John Leguizamo, Janet McTeer, um, Reed Burney, Judith Light. I mean, really a wonderful ensemble of actors and Anya Taylor-Joy playing the customers. It turns into a one-room, you know, you could call it a murder mystery, you could call it just a thriller, but, um, and it, it's a satire. It's a satire on privilege and wealth inequality and um, very similar to a, another really good movie this year called Triangle of Sadness, which uses some of the same themes. And I, I was with it until, and then, you know, this is going to be my complaint from for the rest of my career, which is it goes into a body horror place and a gore and graphic place that I personally don't care for. Right. And I, and that's where I, you know, that's why the degree to which I think like, yeah, it's okay. That's when it became okay for me and not really good, you know, but I mean, um, it's funny, it's biting. It's, um, like I said, it's incredibly stylishly done and it's a great Ray Fiennes performance. So, if you don't, you know, I, I, I'm not crazy about where it goes ultimately, but it has a good time getting there. It's to me, all of those movies are, I, I start laughing and I think of The Freshman. And I think uh, of the scene in The Freshman where Bird Parks goes, there she is, your Komodo dragon. Oh my, no, <laughs> and that's and then, great and satire. And Maggie's Farm. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, that's like great satire. And, and I'm that's just going to, when I look at these other sort of chef things, um, you know, even the competitive ones, because we know somebody who's in the baking one now, Drew, and he's doing very well. He's like past three or four weeks or something like that. I just start to laugh. When are they going to bring out Bird Parks and the Komodo Dragon? <laughs> it's, it's so true. Know, and yeah. now I'm going to go watch that movie. Because you know, you that know, well, so that was movie. written by a guy I went to college with, Andy You're Bergman. Kidding. No, Andy Bergman. Andy oh, Bergman. So good. Let me, I know I've said this. I'm, God, I'm so old. I repeat myself so much. But Andy Bergman was the originator. He had the idea for and wrote the original script for Blazing Saddles. Oh. That's his start. 
You want to you want to talk about starting at the top? My God! And then they brought in you know, and then Richard Pryor, I believe, is part of that, and yep. Mel oh. Brooks is part of that. Oh. But it was his idea. It was Andy wow. Bergman's idea, and then he did the fr- Freshman. He did. I think he did that other brilliant movie, the satire on Dinner Theater, um, Soap Dish. I think oh. that's Andy oh, Bergman yeah. too. So he's you know I don't he, know what he's doing he, now. I just hope he's playing golf. You know, well, I, but I want him to keep writing and like make more. Of, you know, we need yeah. more of those. That was really good. Look up Andy Bergman stuff and see if <gasps> Nigel see what you get on Andy Bergman. Uh, yeah, they don't have it listed uh, normally like they do. I don't no. see. I don't see Soap Dish on here. I think that was him. I don't know. Hmm. I thought it was him. But yeah, lo- lots of great stuff. Yeah. I mean, really. So, all right. So let me get to the Paul Newman thing. Okay. Um, so Paul Newman is long gone and would be about a hundred years old now had he been alive. Mm. Um, handsome. God, he was handsome. Uh, so he, he has talked to a journalist. It has resulted in a biography. Is it an autobiography? Do you know anything about it? And, and the, the larger question is, they're not making stars like that anymore. Mm-mm. How come? Yeah, so go ahead. Well, I, I confess I don't know much about the book, but I think it's based, you know, he, uh, did you see the HBO documentary that Ethan Hawke did? I did not. I heard it was really <gasps> good. It's so good. Yeah, I heard it was really it's- good so incredibly good um and that film was based on interviews that newman had done and the guy who i'm trying to get this right the tapes i think were either destroyed or lost oh is that right but they they got but the good news is they got the transcripts oh okay so ethan had he made this genius choice, which is he cast George Clooney to read Newman's voice, and it was a brilliant choice. And Clooney, I think it's one of his best performances, even though it's just purely vocal. He did it into an iPhone, but it's like he was really close with Newman. You know, he knew him very, very well. Well, he's a star of that level. That's what I'm saying. That's where I was going with this. Is yeah. They do make him, and he, and as a matter of fact, funny you should mention it, because he's getting a Kennedy Center honor this year, and I had the great good pleasure of doing the, the profile of him for The Post, which will be online a week from today. So you sat with him, with I Clooney? I sat with him for an entire afternoon. So um, what, what did you think? Well, you know, I mean, he's, it's so interesting. And, and we talked a lot about Newman, you know, because I think he says that Newman, he, he learned how to be a movie star from two people, Paul Newman and Gregory Peck. And, you know, I think he knew Peck as kind of a young actor, you know, um, right. in L.A., and he would go to Gregory Peck's house. He and his wife would have these house parties with, you know, Frank Sinatra and Jack Lemmon and all the greats. And Well, the guys... We're hanging around right. with the pack. Yeah. The pack. And, uh, and George learned, and he, and he, you know, I have this in the piece, but he says, you know, I, I am Newman the same way. He's like, I just, that's how you, that's how you act. When you're a movie star, you act with a little, uh, you know, dignity, but, but not self-seriousness. You know, you're not afraid to take, take, you know, take the Mickey once in a while and make fun of yourself. But it's just so interesting to me that he's very um, intentional about that, you know, and he's, he is by you know listen i with somebody like george clooney you're kind of like okay where's the where's the gap you know where's the gap between reality and appearance and is he really that and i have to say he's just there's no there, he's sort of a seamless human being you know he's very transparent he's very available 
but he's not um but he's also maintained this kind of wonderful private zone in his life that's i don't know he's just i feel like he's really orchestrated his stardom very gracefully he doesn't do bad movies I'm sorry? He doesn't do bad movies. All his movies are good. You can find, like, I'll give you, I know you will know this movie. Other people won't. It's a very quiet, interesting movie called The American. Uh-huh. He's oh, yeah. fabulous. He's, you know, he's, even though he's George Clooney, he's believable in his movies. Yeah. He's really good. He and he really started good. out he on television. Yeah. Like in a, a hospital drama or something, right? right? Yeah, I think he's an ER guy. ER guy. Yeah. Yeah. And even then, and you know, what's interesting, and, and I wish, you know, you always wish you'd ask him one more question. And you bring up the American. He will often do, he will go silent. Like, he likes to play around with silence. He just did a movie a couple of years ago called Midnight Sky, where he's kind of this apocalyptic figure. He also mentioned something interesting, which is traditionally he's always played older. He's always been cast a little bit older than he really was. And finally now, he's 61, he's like, I'm finally playing my real age, which I thought was sort of, I had never really noticed that before. But he likes to do these movies where he doesn't talk very much. You know, he'll do something like The American. That's or better. Midnight you get, Sky, you or you get paid Solaris. by the word, and it, it works out better for you if you don't have to actually say anything. Right, <laughs> you know, but it's, um, so yeah, he's, he is really fat, you know. Of course, and you know, as you know, like I worship at the altar of Michael Clayton. I just worship that. that well, of me, course, you do. It's right? a fantastically great movie. <laughs> it has the single greatest visual scene I I've ever seen in my life with Tilda Swinton sweating <laughs> like a dog. It's just fantastic. Every single moment, every single second of that movie yes. is perfection. Yes, perfection, including that final shot of him in the taxi. It just. I know. I know. Yeah. That's it's like you can't say enough about it. So, yay, George. But you know, no, he but he did he he told me a really fun story about when they when he did Good Night and Good Luck, he presented it up at Columbia at the journalism school. Um and so he was on a panel with his co, you know, producer Grant Heslov and best friend. Um and I think Marvin Cow was the moderator and you know, it was very you know, very highfalutin and Yeah. They're up there and he looks out and there's Paul Newman just sitting in the audience in his raincoat. Wow. Just came, you know. <laughs> and after the thing, Newman comes up, he goes, do you want to go get a beer? Really? And That's so cool. They did. They went They went around the corner to some pub, and just... Newman ordered two beers, which he, with his habit, he would order two at once, you know. Okay, well, I've told this, I know I've told this story a thousand times. The one and only time I met Paul Newman was at the, Lincoln Center sort of testimonial when he was 50 years old mm. and I was working at Newsday and I was writing about Paul Newman and mm. the three handsomest people I have ever met in my life there's mm. two athletes and Paul Newman uh, and they all share the same eyes mm. Bruce Jenner coming mm. out of the Olympics in uh, in Montreal Jim Palmer unbelievable mm. eyes and Paul Newman Right. Paul Newman, and you go, wow. Um, so I met him, and we chatted for a while. And maybe it's just acting. I don't know, and you would know. Maybe it's just acting. But he made you feel like, yeah, like we're guys. It's cool. Let's talk. What are you doing? What do you uh, think of this? And you go, oh, my God. It's like, really? You know, and so I was tremendously impressed. And then, and then my George Clooney story, again, the 25th retell of this, he was doing something called... K Street or L Street uh-huh. or something like that, oh, yeah. a six-part thing on HBO. 
Yeah. And there was a reception for him and the other people in it at the Palm. Okay, mm. this is at the Palm. This is 20 years ago at the Palm. And I'm standing with Tommy Giacomo, who is the maitre d' and the guy who runs the Palm, the late, great Tommy Giacomo. And we're at the front where the Palm used to have the maitre d' stand. It, they moved it a little bit, but it, we're on the right-hand side. Uh, 20 feet into the restaurant, past three tables. As you walk in, three tables on your left. And then at that point, that's where the maitre d' stand was. And Tommy said, I wanted to see George Clooney. And Tommy said, stick with me. And so we, I was with Tommy the whole time. So there's like 150, 200 people in there. And they are mostly, Anne, congressmen and senators and lobbyists or everybody who would have something to do with this movie. Mm-hmm. Every one of them, in his or her own way, is a star mm-hmm. in the company store of Washington, D.C. That's right. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is very important to understand. These people are big deals in Washington. They right. may not be big anywhere else. They're big deals here, and they know it, and they all have assistants, and they all have gophers. You know, that's how it works in big deal politics. George Clooney walks in, walks, standing, he's one foot from me as he walks in. Every one of these people has a camera <laughs> and took George Clooney's picture. Mm-hmm. There were pops of light like I had never seen before in my life. I was thunderstruck mm-hmm. by the whole thing because they knew you know, we may be big stars in our little corner of the world. This guy, <laughs> yeah. this guy is a star. And he took it well because he's practiced at taking it well because that's part of the drill yeah. when you're a movie star. Yeah. And he chatted with everybody and you say to yourself, wow, oh, this I guy's know. great. No, he really is. Right? So you had the same feeling, right? Oh, I, do, I totally. And I mean, I've interviewed him before, and he's just, he's, he's on point. <laughs> he's on point. He knows what he's there to do, and he'll do it. And he'll do it, he'll do it with a smile. He won't do it begrudgingly. He won't make you, he won't make you feel like a jerk for asking. Um, and he won't make, you know, he'll sign the autographs. He'll smile. You know, he's just a very... Yeah, it's a very, all I can say is great. You know, it's funny because um, now I'm giving the story away here a little bit, but one of the best interviews I did for this new story was with his dad, Nick, a a journalist in his own right, um, and also a lovely, very graceful, you know, human being. And, um, you know, my theory of the case was, well, he kind of learned it all from you, Nick, and, and Nina, his mom, but like it starts at home, right, these values, this character. And Nick said, no, no, not, I get too much credit. He said, that's really him. And he, he brings the same work ethic to making it look effortless, <laughs> you know, as he does to everything else. And it is hard work, and he doesn't make it show. And he doesn't it's, – it's, I really do admire it. And plus, which, just all of his political and humanitarian work, I mean, he really knows that stuff. Like, he is not a dilettante. He really does know it, and he, he can talk about that just as easily as he can. Oh, it's funny what you said about that party, because we talked about that, too, about the kind of um, the power hierarchies of L.A. and D.C., you know, and, and how they each have their own pecking orders about, like, you know, who's the star, who's the director, who's, you know, they, yeah. they and he laughed about that. But, no, your, 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 your reading of him is exactly like mine like yeah i don't see any uh i don't see any daylight there like he's just always he's always in the pocket fabulous 
Thanks for being on the show. Make me very oh, happy. Thank you, Ann. Ann Hornaday, boys and girls. We'll take a break. Ooh, I, I wanted to give it up. Uh, Bergman did, in fact, do the rewrite for Soap Dish. Okay. He was buried in that. Plus, he also wrote a couple of comedies people might be familiar with. The In-Laws. Yeah. That movie that, and Fletch. Yeah. 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 He's good. Yeah. And he's good. <laughs> he's really and he's good. good. We'll be back with Steve Sands. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Once again, these are the Reed Brothers. This is a song called Summer Heartache. And these guys, who are really one guy, are really good. Oh. Really, really good. This is like... Yeah. Legit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is the kind of guy you'd say, could, could you just come over? I'm going to have about ten people over here. Could you sing a couple of tunes for us? Just... You're really good. <laughs> yes. You're really good. The Reed Brothers, boys and girls. They play in Steve Sands. In the truth and honesty department, which I'm pretty good at, and I know that people like to know how the show is put together, on Fridays, we have Jason Locke and Fora almost religiously, and he's great. And I was looking forward to it because we had the three games yesterday, which I have not mentioned to this point. I haven't mentioned Chuck Todd with eight seconds to go gets a late cover and wins his only game of the day as the Giants score with eight seconds to go. So Jason is under the weather, and I find this out at about six in the morning. And I talk to Michael about it, and I say, let's put Steve on if he's around. And I write this text at 7.18 in the morning. Hi, are you in America? Are you awake? Lock and four is sick, and Michael and I immediately thought of you, Tony. And over an hour goes by, and I'm vamping on this podcast, and I'm, I'm ready to just call it. It's okay. It's, you know, it's the day after Thanksgiving. You're happy to listen to us. You hate your families. It's okay. We're all in the same boat. And at 8.31, I get, yep, call anytime, happy to do it. So we have Steve Sands, and I have great gratitude for him to do this. And what, what's the Sands family Thanksgiving like where you are? We have uh, the whole family here. Uh, we used to go up to D.C., uh, but when my mother passed away three and a half years ago, everybody kind of migrated down here to our place right? in Florida. Uh, everybody showed up, um, and it was great. Probably turned the TV on at about 12.15, and the Lions game started at 12.30. And I don't think I moved other than to get up to go to the bathroom, right? to get another drink, to get more food. Um, and then went to bed at about 1.15 a.m. after watching a late-night college basketball game on the West Coast with our oldest son, Brian. So uh, it was great. I love Thanksgiving. It's my favorite week of the year. It's my favorite holiday of the year. It's my favorite day, Thursday of Thanksgiving week. Uh, it's the best. Family, food, drinking, uh, lots of great sports. It's the best. Who was there? Who was there from the family? Was your brother there? I- my, my younger brother flew in because the store's so busy this week. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine how busy he is. Uh, my brother He's flew slicing in. cheese like crazy. <laughs> I mean, by yeah. the way, he told a great story last night uh, during Thanksgiving dinner that Carol came into the store a couple of weeks ago or late last week, and she was walking around for like 20 minutes at the store. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that we patronize... Strong. Calvert, well, we actually do that. Yeah. That's what we do. Celebrating yeah. 40 right. years, Calvert Woodley. He was, yeah. He was very excited about that. Uh, so he flew in real, real early yesterday morning. My older brother, David, uh, drove my father in on Tuesday. Um, our two oldest sons came in from Maryland and Indiana uh, over the weekend. Uh, 
Uh, they're still here. And our youngest son, we still have one in the house. He's a senior in high school. Uh, he's here. Uh, my sister flew in with her husband and her kid. Uh, cool. So everybody's here. Okay, so uh, you have a big Thanksgiving. We were talking about this at the Open. I don't have big Thanksgivings. I don't have a big family, really. But I talked about when I was a kid being at the kids' table. Now, your kids are older, but do you have a, <laughs> yeah. do you have a designated table based on age and seniority? No, no. We used to, just like everybody else, for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and right. Thanksgiving and all those kinds of things. Uh, but no, the, the kids are all grown and old now, and uh, the youngest ones are 17. Uh, my niece, Jordan, 17. Our youngest son, Eric, 17. So some people have big Thanksgivings uh, and have their entire family over, and some people, you know, give away their daughter to someone who is a nice guy and is getting married in front of a guy who's wearing a kilt. Yeah. Everybody has, to each their own. Yeah, and that's great. Um, so I'm, I'm happy. And nobody was wearing a kilt yesterday. Right, so you don't have, because of, because of what you do for a living, there's no golf on Thanksgiving, but you couldn't do this on July 4th, and you couldn't do this on Labor Day or Memorial Day, You're right? You're working, so this is your holiday. Yeah, holidays are, are strange in the sports casting world, as you know, just like in yeah. the sports writing world, yep. the broadcasting world. Um, when I was doing football and basketball and baseball and hockey and horse racing and tennis, I was never home for never Christmas. Never for holidays. Never home never. for Thanksgiving. Uh, when I started doing golf, I was like, wow, I, I'm home for Thanksgiving. This is the greatest, man. And then they added the night game. I mean, like, I do nothing on Thanksgiving, literally. Val Sands takes care of everything. I used to do the cranberry relish. Yeah. Uh, but Val's just like, just get out of the way. Get out of here. <laughs> just, you know, pour the drinks and go watch football. And uh, it's the best. I Like, literally, it's my favorite week of the year. And not because I happen to be off for Thanksgiving every year now, now that I do golf, but since I've gotten into this groove of doing golf and not having to work Thanksgiving, I just think it's the greatest, man. It's just, I mean, I'm obviously a massive sports fan, huge football, love my family, uh, get to be home. Uh, it's, it's, it's the best. But, yes, there's no question. I'm very grateful uh, to have the holiday off because I know a lot of sportscasters do not. But in this particular sport, usually you get Thanksgiving off. Do you ha- are you off until when? When do you resume golf work? Uh, I go to that really brutal, horrific assignment on Tuesday. I fly to the Bahamas that's for the Hero World Challenge. Yeah. And that, that's Tiger. That's Tiger. Can I ask that's this question? Tiger. Tiger's going to play. Now, I, 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 Card I got, free. I've got to ask this question. <laughs> there is um, what the PGA Tour has done in recent years in order to stop the attrition from people from not being on the PGA Tour is they instituted right. this program that has something to do with your popularity. Um, yeah. And if you're really popular, they give you a ton of money. And Tiger Woods, every year, even if he doesn't play, even when Tiger Woods passes on, he's going to win because he's the guy that everybody loves more than everybody else. So they hand him a check for $15 million. There's a part of me which says, what are you doing? <laughs> Come on. What are you doing? Can you answer that for me? Where is Brian Arapko when you need him? Um, <laughs> the, they started this program. Look, we all know what's going on with professional golf. We all understand the PGA Tour is trying to do its best to make sure that nobody else migrates away sure. from the PGA Tour to go to live. And they're trying to figure out a few ways here and there to give the best players in the world. It actually makes sense to give the best players in the world, the guys who really drive the bus, the guys who really 
you know, drive the ratings on television and the revenue of the sport. The top, top guys. They're trying to get them as much money as they can without having them rely on strictly their performance, which is what golf has always been about at the highest level. Even in its height, the greatest thing to me about professional golf, other than the actual greatness and the competition of it, the greatest thing to me is Tiger Woods would have to pay his own way to go somewhere, pay a caddy, pay for a hotel or a rental house or whatever, apartment, whatever he's going to do, eat, and if he missed the cut, he was out. Man, he was gone. He lost that money and was out. There, there's no shooting three for 21 and still getting that paycheck John Starks. in one of those 82 games in the NBA. Nothing like that. I always found that to be a really romantic part about the PGA Tour. It's always been performance-based. Now, things have changed, and nobody likes change. But what they're trying to do with that PIP program is just that. Try to reward the best players you know, outside of just their performance I happen to think it's it's stupid. I think they should just pump that money into, into doing other things. Oh, so do I. Put it in the prize money. What are you Correct. doing? I, I totally it's agree. It's millions of dollars. Here's the here's the rub. I totally agree with you, Tony, but here's the thing. If Liv is going to offer these guys guaranteed money yes, and, I, I get then it. Go, and then go play for money, yeah, right, exactly. I'm, I'm with you. I get it also. I just don't love it. Uh, but you and I are old and old school uh, but in this new wave of how do we keep these guys from going somewhere else for these guaranteed millions and millions of dollars? You know, look, Tiger turned down probably a reported three quarters of a billion. All right, uh, that's what a B. Three quarters of a billion dollars to go to live. I don't think fifteen million in the PIP program is going to keep him on the PGA <laughs> Tour. I just think they're just kind of sliding it around. And, and kind of maneuvering the money. And let's see how it all shakes well, out. Well, the, the only question that, that you have, if you pay a little bit of attention, is you go, yeah. wait a second, they have this money? They have this money laying around that they can <laughs> do this? And they didn't give this money in purses before? What? How did the? So you say to yourself, how did this happen? Right? As a very good friend of mine uh, who's in our business, Tony, said to me when all this started about six months ago or whatever it was, yeah, six, eight months ago, it's amazing when you're forced to that you can find a billion dollars of change under the couch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that line. It's, uh, look, I don't know where the money was. I'm not saying there's anything nefarious by any Oh, no, I nor am I. Nor, yeah, I just think that, look, they, they got punched in the mouth and they're punching back. Yeah. And they found they found other revenue streams, uh, and they have found other ways to conduct their business. By no means do I think the PGA Tour was hiding any money from the players. I just think that the model was the model, and now the model has changed. Has been forced to change a yeah. little bit because, again, they got punched in the mouth by somebody, uh, and now they're punching back. So let's look forward a little bit. This is the only sport other than, I think, that the – that kickbox stuff is now at war with other people who are trying to, <laughs> yes. you know, take advantage of it. Is that MMA or UFC, whatever it's called? It doesn't matter. There's other people doing that now. But that's not a major sport. That's a rogue sport and something I don't care about. But golf's a major sport, and it's the only sport where there's a war going on right now. There's no war in baseball or football or basketball or tennis or track. It's, it's golf. It's been on for about a year, a little less than a year. We go into the second year of this do you see the end? Do you see light? 
You know, I, I, I feel like there's a little bit of a lull right now, a little bit of a dip. Now, that might be the time of year, might be yeah. the schedule, might be football season, might be the PGA Tour just, you know, you know stopped its fall season you know, last week at Sea Island, uh, at St. Simons Island, Georgia. Um, or that Liv doesn't have an event, Tony, until the end of February. Right. Uh, they haven't even released its schedule yet uh, for 2023. But they're going to have 14 events. They're going to start at the end of February. They're going to go all the way to the fall. They still don't have a TV contract yet. They still don't have anything other than their streaming service uh, or YouTube uh, streaming service uh, to show their product. I think that's the key. Uh, I think that's the, the next big step. The next big step for Liv is can it be shown on a more quote-unquote regular platform that allows the masses to see it as opposed to try to find it and figure out, you know, when is it, where is it, how is it being shown, that kind of thing. Um, as far as the exodus of players, there was a little bit of a rumor there a couple of weeks ago. Xander Shoffley and Patrick Cantley, who were best of friends, whose significant others are best friends. They vacation together. Uh, they hang out together all the time on the road. Uh, they're kind of a package deal. They're very, very accomplished players. Uh, that would hurt the PGA Tour if they went, but, you know, that, that, that rumor has kind of backed off a touch. So the way I see it is the PGA Tour is going to go about its business. Starting in January at Kapalua, they're going to have these elevated events where the best players in the world are going to play more often, which is going to benefit the fans. It's going to benefit television. It's going to benefit revenue. It's going to benefit the sponsors. So everyone's going to be... You know, happy about that, but the other events that are not elevated, eh, they're not so happy. So we're going to have to wait and see how that all plays out throughout the course of 2023. But it seems to me, Tony, that the PGA Tour is playing the long game here. Listen, you guys go do your thing. We're going to do our thing. Let's see how this all shakes out at the end of 23. Will they get a TV contract? Will they get any more players to get over there? And the official World Golf Ranking holds all the cards, Tony. If they don't allow World Golf ranking points to the live events, they already do that to the PGA Tour. If they do not give World Golf ranking points to the live events, those guys are going to be boxed out of the biggest events yeah. in the sport, the Masters, the PGA, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship, unless they're already qualified. That, to me, means, Tony, that the big names will not go to live. They won't go to live now until they receive the official World Golf ranking points, and right now they don't. So I think the tour, the PGA Tour, is going to play the long game and hope everything works out for them. And they're conducting their business that way, and I, and I think that's a smart thing. Very happy you came on the show today. It makes me very happy <laughs> to learn happy about to your Thanksgiving. You know, so thanks. And uh, we'll talk soon. Steve Sands, boys and girls, appreciate it very, very much. Is this a Wally Pip situation? Can I talk NFL with you, what, you know, next time? Oh, sure. You can do that. So that's the end of Lock and Fora. Yeah. That's the end. That's okay. We can do that the next time. We'll talk, we'll talk about uh, those games and, and Chuck Todd getting eight seconds away from being 0-3. Because <laughs> you know, he had the Giants. I got, in news, I got news for you. Yeah, I got news for you. If that Cowboys kicker would have made that field goal to make it an 18-point game, right. there are a lot of Sands people who would have been a lot happier also. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah and I understand that. Steve Sands, boys and girls, we'll take a break. We'll come back with email and jingle. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. Oh, come all ye littles, hopeful and expectant, oh, come now in. 
got your emails, faxes, and your notes. Perhaps today he'll read yours. Perhaps today he'll read yours. Perhaps today he'll read yours. Most likely he won't. I won't. That is Mark Schaefer and the Schaeferettes. It's lovely. We love to hear that. Nigel, what about the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. You we were stunned them. they were open yesterday. I was. They're in business. Not only were they open, it was a crowded scene. Of course. And to this morning, there were people, there was a line outside waiting yeah. for them to open up. Bethesda Bagels, we love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. That'll just about do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let me say day after day, I'm more confused. You know, look for the light through the pouring rain you know that's a game that i hate to lose and i'm feeling the strain ain't it a shame give me the beat boys free my soul i want to get lost in your rock and roll and drift away that's Dolby great that's one of the greatest songs ever it yes. is infectious in your body you just move to it all the time uh let's thank simply safe our sponsor today remember you can listen to us on apple Podcasts, spotify google play and odyssey if you get the show through apple Podcasts, please leave us a review during the break um nigel talked about a turkey incident at a Thanksgiving that you hadn't talked about before. Oh, yes. Uh, cooking a turkey with, with a friend of mine uh, from university. And as we started preparing, he goes, oh, yeah, no salt. I'm off salt. And I was like, well, that's kind of a critical ingredient for this, I think. And then we proceeded to not cook the turkey entirely. So we ended up having to sort of carve around some rather raw parts of a turkey, which is not advised. Was it just the two of you? It was the two of us and his father, and he was he was not thrilled with what we came up with. Did he put him in the corner with a dunce cap? <laughs> no, he did. Did not. he do that? He did not do that. And I'm appalled. Okay. Nobody puts Tony in the corner. Come okay. on. Did, did, did the bird look cooked when he took yeah. it out of the oven? Yeah. Was I, there I, browning? I remember feeling like, oh yeah, I think this thing is done. Yeah. And you then think? We, yeah. And then we we dove in. It was yeah, it was an early turkey cooking for me. So it was a lesson learned. Did you ever fry a turkey? I've never. Michael's fried. next door neighbors. neighbors. Fried a I'm, turkey. I'm always terrified. And their house didn't explode. Yeah, they you're fried terrified. It, they fried it in the yard. Doing. Yeah. yeah. They what, fried it in the, in the driveway. Driveway, yeah. Have you done that before? I've never done I'm terrified. You watch yeah. the news. I, they I, blow up. But when people do it, it have they you, explode. They're like rocket yeah, ships. Yeah, they shoot out like a cannonball. But, but <laughs> it frees up your oven space. Doesn't take forever to cook. And for you, it's cooked to the proper temperature. <laughs> Which is, yes. But just don't Which put it near a car. <laughs> in, case, in case your car blows Slowly up. Slowly drop the turkey in or else you're going to get that grease fire. Yeah. 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 When done well, it tastes brilliant though i've never had it have you had i've never had i've I've never had it oh i I know that you can get a a prepared turkey from popeyes now really pre-order from popeyes yeah it's good love that turkey at popeyes (laughs) love that turkey (laughs) it's chicken right popeyes is chicken chicken. yeah it's love that chicken but i just made it love that turkey so see what you did this doesn't compare to the all-time cooking faux pas um that i know i've said on this show before but perhaps you just don't remember I was in seventh grade, in seventh grade at uh, Woodmere Junior High School South. Actually, it was just Woodmere Junior High School then. It didn't become South till ninth grade. But at seventh grade in Woodmere Junior High School, boys had to do 10 weeks of cooking and sewing. Boys. This was like you had 10 weeks of metal shop. Oh, sure. You had 10 weeks of wood shop. And then you had 10 weeks of cooking and sewing, boys. And they and it was segregated by gender. That that's what happened. I mean, girls had to do girls together. I'm sure that wouldn't this would never happen now because there's no equality to it. But girls together were 
farmed out to do 10 weeks of wood shop and metal shop, assuming that they would never do it again. And, and that if they did it with girls, it would be better than because some boy wouldn't say, what are you, a dope that you can't do this? Look right. how easy this is. And similarly with cooking, the assumption was if you kept the girls away from the boys, then the boys in their total incompetence and sewing. I've to- I know I've told the Eddie Materiali story. Eddie Materiali, who ended up as a starting second baseman, I believe, at Hewlett High School when I was there, we had sewing. We had sewing machines sewing. And Eddie stitched his right hand together. Oh. Fingers two, three, four. He finally pulled it away before the pinky finger went in. Stitched his hand together. Ow. Right. Did it help him turn the double play? Well, it was it was his it was his throwing hand, not even his glove hand. It was mm. his right hand. Well, he was good enough to be to be on the team. Stitch his hand together. There's nothing. Like when you see that, you go, oh, my God, Eddie stitched his hand together and blood. <laughs> blood's pouring out. Anyway, so we had the cooking part. Uh, we went to Brent Glass's house. Brent Glass, who you know from the show, who ultimately became the director of the American Museum of History, the most important archivist in the United States of America, Brent Glass, Hewlett High School and North Carolina, and then I think a master's at Duke. I think a master's at Duke in history. Anyway, so we're there, and we're cooking brownies, and, you know, Brent's not really in charge, but it's at Brent's house, so if Brent says something, we all sort of listen. So I guess Brent is in charge of the ingredients. Now, making brownies isn't that tough. I mean, there's sugar, there's flour, there's chocolate. Yeah. Am I leaving anything out? I don't know what else there is. It's not... The box mix? It's just not that hard. (laughs) Right. It's not that hard to do. No. So after the suitable amount of time, they were not underdone like your friend's turkey. <laughs> they, were, they were done. There was 20 minutes. for whatever, However many minutes it was, Brent took them out. There was steam rising over them. They cooked, you know, cut them into squares, and everybody started to eat. And here's what you heard next. <laughs> like that. Everybody. <laughs> Because Brent used salt instead of sugar. <laughs> That's a stunner, isn't it? <laughs> what when you get brownie? So your guy didn't want salt. He should never come and eat Brent's brownies. Right. No, yeah. it didn't. It didn't inhibit Brent's career. Brent had a great career. Did not hinder him. You know, no. but he it was salt instead of sugar. Did you ever do that? I've not done that. Although no. I worry about it every time I see the kids climb up onto the counter for baking with mom. <laughs> yeah, that they're going to use the wrong. I'm sure, thing. there's a little bit of salt doing those. You know. Yeah. So. Uh, can I do a couple of emails? Yes, we ran I'm out sure of time. I'm haunted really by matter. that turkey. Uh, from Carla Corrado it's in awful. Columbus, Ohio. Can I to carve it at the table? Perhaps the most obvious and self-aware <laughs> thing you carver. ever said. Quote, I'm not a falafel guy. We could have predicted that. <laughs> Enjoy your chicken parm. From Todd in Drumstand, North Carolina. And we are plus 30 trillion in debt. This is in reaction to the billions a trillion seconds is about 32,000 years. These are incomprehensible numbers. Wow. And we're 30 trillion in debt. We're not working that off soon. <laughs> no. That's not happening. No. From no. Gil, good morning. On what channel does the Tony Corner just show air? And who's channel eight? Who's channel eight, yeah. Check your From Brandon Toombs, am I the only one uh, who has anyone picked or has anyone picked up on the fact that Reginald's success is related to La Nina? I posit he is looking at barometric pressures differences related to those occasional cycles and thinking underdog, either that or monkey. From Brian in Dallas, Texas. I began listening a few months ago after a recommendation from a friend. I used to watch PTI religiously 
uh, with my dad. And when I found out about the podcast, I figured there are worse ways to spend a short commute to work. Now, as an alumni of Wright State, I was absolutely ecstatic when I heard you ask who else the Louisville team had lost to, knowing my smaller relevant school will be mentioned on a popular podcast. And then you continued to state, I think they're in Detroit, which proves your point that Louisville had no business losing to us. I wanted to write in that Wright State is actually in Dayton, Ohio, which is about an hour and a half west of Galena. Sadly, since I've not been back in a few years, I cannot give an update on traffic. I didn't know that. I thought it was in Detroit. And I then mean, somebody obviously. said the Wright brothers, I guess, is that maybe that's... If there's a well, name. they're in North Carolina. Were they born in... They, oh, no, they're from, they're from Ohio. Yeah. I think of them as... Well, Carolina, Carolina kids. Yeah. From Jeff in Madison, Wisconsin. I like how you mentioned that Barbara Streisand might be listening. I love a visual of her drinking a glass of wine, surrounded by her egots, <laughs> listening as you and Wilbon debate how much snow DC got last year and read me undies ads. I'd pay good money to hear her sing. Reginald's got the Vikes by two. Sometimes he throws poo poo poo. Uh, Babs, if you're listening, from Brian. Yeah, she should be listening. What else? Really? What does she have to do? From Brian, I was driving home today after having breakfast with a woman to whom I'm related by marriage and listening to Monday's show when I had my first David Aldridge moment. I work as an insurance broker with my clients being almost exclusively golf and country clubs. Naturally, every time a discussion of a club or a round of golf comes up, my interest is piqued. But Monday, you mentioned your friend Charles Newman, and I thought, I know a Charles Newman. Then the brief story mentioned Will Hoffman, and I thought, I know a Will Hoffman. Finally, the story mentioned how Will had just been married in Austin, Texas. Yes, to, to Bob Dolan's daughter, and I thought... The Will Hoffman I know is from Austin as well. With one too many coincidences for it not to be a DA moment, I gave Will a call to confirm it was indeed him who had recently married Shannon. Will quickly quickly confirmed it was indeed him, and after a quick laugh about how uh, I learned of his wedding, he shared a couple of stories about Charles, you and Columbia Country Club. Been listening for a couple of years now. I want to thank you all for the hours of entertainment and enjoyment. It's very sweet. That is lovely. If you're out on your bike time, everyone, as always, do wear white. But I still need a bit of milk, full well, fat, ah. which I've warmed in the micro wave.
Young boy, what does it mean? Cold heart, new blue jeans. Do you have the heart? Do you have the heart? Oh no, is that how true? What he said that she did to you. Do you have the heart? Do you have the heart? You gotta read the script the whole way through. You'll never know the story until you do. It's inevitable, baby. All your dreams are coming true. Yeah, you gotta read the script the whole way through. 